join us in our classrooms. Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome to November. Uh, Daylight savings, everybody made it. I used to send out these messages that were like, don't forget to set your, I guess, VCR clock back or whatever, if you still got one. Seems so pointless now for like, and when we first started, it was a reminder, and now it's like, you just forget about it. But is there a better feeling, well, there may be a better feeling, I take that statement back, but is there a better feeling really than being like 11 o'clock at night and then all of a sudden just remembering, you're like, oh, sweet, fancy Moses, it is actually 10, like... It's like the greatest gift. And then the converse of that in the spring, is there a bigger kick to the pants than the thing where you're like, oh my God, it's midnight. It's like panic. And so I'd be fine doing away with it, but I really, really loved it last night at 11 where I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, this is the greatest gift ever. We get a whole extra hour and then your body clock wakes you up anyway, so it doesn't matter. And so, or your kids get up at 5.30 and do away with the whole thing. But anyway, we're glad you made it. We're glad your clocks got set back and everybody survived. And here we are, daylight savings, time ending and getting our hour back. So we are, are glad that you're here and glad that you, you forged ahead. Um, we are in the middle, I say the middle, we are the very end actually of this journey through the book of Hebrews, week 32. So for 32 weeks, we've explored this this incredible, really what is a sermon more than a book, um, that is really pointed at a group of Hebrew Christians, Hebrew believers that are wrestling with the pressure from culture, from family, from the people around them to return to an old covenant way of life, to return to a culture that says Jesus is not it, he is not the answer, he is not the way. Return to the law, return to the original way of Moses, and return to your family and customs. And our, our, our author, our preacher, is pleading with this group to say, listen, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is not better God has given us a better way. He has created a better way that is better than the law, better than Moses, better than the high priest. He's given us a mediator of a new covenant that allows you access to who I am. And he's given this incredible picture to show just why Jesus is better. It's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, which is Jesus is better. It rests on Christ's supremacy and Christ's sufficiency. Christ's supremacy being he is better and greater than all things, no matter what this world has to offer, even the old covenant, even the old way of life, even anything that you may have in your own realm or spirit, Jesus is better than, right? Anything this world could possibly offer. And then Christ's sufficiency, meaning that he is totally and without need for anything else. It is not Jesus and other things. It is not Jesus and our works that save. It is not Jesus and financial freedom. It is not Jesus and whatever. It is just Jesus. He is holy and totally enough. And that's important for these Hebrew Christians to hear because the thought process was, I can maybe still follow Christ and still adhere to the law. And our author, our preacher is saying, no, that is an incorrect and a broken and a bankrupt theology. It is not Jesus and still living perfect. It is just Jesus. And so he's making this incredible plea. We go through pretty much two-thirds of the book with a pretty deep theological dive into why this is true about Christ's supremacy and sufficiency. And then the last third of the book turns really practical. We've been talking about this for the past six weeks or so. Our author gets incredibly practical on how we begin to live out these theological truths and why, we living, why us living them out is incredibly important. And so last week, for example, we explored six truths of the Christian life that we are called to, like the idea of bracing ourselves uh, because life is hard, because we're going to run into the difficulty. We've got to ready our hearts, and we're called to do this in community and support each other when we go through these terrible or difficult or hard things, and how we're called to literally be holy, like to be set apart, to live in that part of our call that is set apart from the world. 
The idea of holiness in, in Scripture being not moral, pious perfection, but the idea that we've been set apart by God for a holy purpose, right? This idea that we have been called and are going to be used by God. So holiness, therefore, is to be set apart and used by him. The fact that we're called to live at peace with people. Like we are called literally as peacemakers, that we are called to be the ones, not for tolerance, but the idea being the ones that we are called to forgiveness, we are called to freedom, we are called to love people. We're called to care about the spiritual well-being of other people. Remember that it should matter to us where other people in the community are spiritually. It should matter to us that people struggle, that they're hurting, or that they're missing out on God's grace. It should move and stir our hearts. And so we're called to that desire to care for the spiritual well-being of other people. We're called to guard against bitterness, right? We explored that one last week as well. The idea being that bitterness creeps in and leads to resentment, and resentment leads to death. And it's not someone else's job, but it's your job as a follower of Christ to let bitterness have no place in your heart in your marriage, in your family, in the church. But they're called to guard against it. And then finally, we explore the idea of fleeing or being afraid of or pushing back from sexual morality, like the idea of the temporary, those things in our life that want instant gratification, to push back against those and fight against those things because God has called us to something that is with a much bigger joy and a much bigger pleasure than just what can gratify us now and how that has the potential to disrupt and dislodge and break and shred and tear apart community. So we saw these very tangible things. And we've seen those for the past six weeks. We've explored them in different ways and different things, the very practical side of living this deep theological kind of picture out. Well, this morning we're wrapping up chapter 12, and we are, are still living in the practical, but we're turning a little bit as he's going to wrap up part of the letter, and he's going to really motivate, like use these verses to remind you and to motivate you when living this Christian life that there are some specific things that we can't forget. And so there's not so much the call to action this week, but a call to remember and a call to be motivated. There are reasons this Christian life is worth living. And sometimes we just forget those. We forget that there are beautiful things that God has put in place that have carried us out of the fear of not knowing God and to the joy of knowing exactly who he is. And so this morning we're going to be looking at those motivations as we wrap up chapter 12. And then that will leave us chapter 13 that we'll jump back into in January. That's really amazing because he starts just, it's almost like, Brian and I talk about it like this, it's almost like he's a preacher and he's running out of time. And so he's got to jam a bunch of things in because he's going to talk about marriage, he's going to talk about money, he's going to talk about all these important things. He's like, the clock is ticking and he's going to shout out some things to say, I make sure I want to say this, uh, we're not going to miss those. And so we're going to be doing that in January. But this is going to kind of be our last stop for a little while on the uh, Hebrew train to glory. So um, all aboard. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and open your word, <coughs> that your word is living and active. <clears throat> you tell us yourself that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, uh, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That's how you describe the word of God. And so, Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. It is your very breath. You have breathed life into it. And so, Lord, we do not take it lightly. In fact, it is more than just some kind of guidebook for our life. It is your very love letter poured out for us, the way that you speak and teach us. Uh, Lord, it cannot be ignored. Lord, it is called to be the very part of our life of which all things begin and end, because it is your word. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that as we open these last verses in the Hebrews chapter 12, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, but, Lord, that you would really just motivate us. Motivate us to remember why we are called to live this Christian life. These great theological and powerful truths that are just simply beautiful. 
Take a moment in your own heart this morning as you just sit here and we prepare to open God's word and just ask the Lord to teach you. Maybe your prayer this morning is that simple. Lord, just teach my heart. All these things we've heard for 32 weeks that you would just kind of bring them to culmination and that you would teach me this morning. Lord, just whisper that in your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone in front of you or behind you, beside you. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's just someone you have never seen or maybe here for the first time, and that seems a little weird, but we're going to invite you to just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As we say each week, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be a lover of people. Care about the spiritual well-being of other people, and just pray that God would move in them. Whether it's your children or a stranger, just pray. because God, I want you to to move in the heartbeat of this person. Lord, just pray for the people around you this morning that they would have an encounter with the risen Christ, that God would teach their hearts. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask for the next few moments that you would just teach us, that you would uh, reveal truth to us, that you would instruct us. These are some challenging and some deep and some theologically rich passages, but the message inside of them is beautifully simple. That you're reminding us of some important things, motivating our heart to keep fighting, to keep walking forward, to keep trusting, to keep believing, Lord, to never give up. These are the motivating factors of the Christian life, and you're going to put them right in front of us this morning. So we ask that you would teach our hearts, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So it's almost as if our author knows he's wrapping this up, bringing it to a close. He knows that in the next chapter, he's going to be shouting off some things to make sure he's squeezing every last drop out of the turnip. But he's going to wrap up this idea that's kind of been unfolding from 10 through 11 through 12, all those chapters of the practical, with just some reminders to stay motivated. He's given us a whole bunch of practical steps, and so he's going to pull those theological cords, kind of bungee cords, back around all these practical things, and he's going to say, listen, just remember, just be motivated. Um, and he's going to share a few of those things. So we're going to look at 18 all the way down to the end of the chapter through 20, um, I guess that's 29. We'll read them all together, and then we'll break it up a little bit this morning. But this is God's Word, uh, Hebrews 12, starting at 18, going all the way down through 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to the God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men, who were made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when, he, when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, 
so that we cannot be so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we've taken a little deeper dive again, right? You can almost feel it. It's a different tone. He's very practical last week. Do these things, these things, these things, right? Be thankful or, or uh, uh, fight for holiness or be a peacemaker or brace yourself. Like very practical things to uh, move back into the deep. It's the way that this Hebrews author has painted this picture. It's been these simple truths coupled with a deep theological reminders behind them. And that's what makes the book so powerful is that it's not just this simple picture. It's these great calls coupled with the reasoning behind them. And we step back into this reasoning and he's basically saying, I've given you all these things to do, all these practical steps on how to live out these truths. And I want to remind you why you want to continue to fight, to continue to walk. Because remember last week he told us that the Christian life is hard. It's difficult It is a race. He calls it a long endurance race. Run with perseverance the race marked out for you, beginning of chapter 12. Meaning the Christian life is an endurance race and it's hard. And he's reminding us in the chapter to keep going. And he calls these things really essentially motivations. They're reminders. And I started thinking about what motivates us in the Christian life. Like to just keep putting one foot in front of the other, to not give up. And for a lot of us, it's different things, right? For some of us, it's the idea That in this crazy world that kind of feels like it's on fire, imploding around us, that God is in total control. That as Jesus tells you in the book of Matthew, all the hairs on your head are accounted for. That we're told that God is completely and totally in control of all things. That he is sovereign. That all things hold together because of who he is. That some of that motivation is, I don't know that I could wake up in a morning in a world in the morning where things were at random and no one was in charge. Like, that's terrifying to me. Even with as difficult as things may be, the idea that God is real and big settles my heart. It motivates me to keep trusting. But if we believe everything's just left up to chance, like, what's the reason? Like, so for a lot of us, we stay motivated because we believe that God is in control. Even when I am not, he sees the end. He knows the timeline of my life. I don't have to walk in fear. For a lot of us, it's the idea that I'm motivated because God knows my true heart. I know that he's forgiven me from some of the most terrible and awful things. I know that he knows the things that I've done in my past, the things that I'm doing in my now, the things that I'll do in my future, that he has freed me and forgiven me from deep sin, that if I truly were came clean with the people around me, like they may dislike me, disown me, or hate me, that they knew the true fear in my heart, or the true sin in my heart, or the things that I've done, yet God knows all of those things and frees and forgives me in Christ. And so I'm motivated to wake up because I know that without Christ, my life literally is nothing that I would probably end up hopeless or in a gutter or something without him. And so I'm motivated to put one foot in front of the other in this difficult journey because God has set me free and given me reason to wake up, reason to live, reason to dance, reason to sing. For some of us, it's the idea that God holds this thing together. Like, I can't do it. I've tried. I can't hold my family together. I can't make these things work. I can't make my marriage last. I can't make my kids come to know Christ. So I trust that God holds it together. And so I'm motivated because he can do what I can't. There's a plethora of things that we may be motivated about. But those are some of the ones off the top of my head that really move me. That God is in control. That he frees me from my sin and that he does what I cannot. And those are great reasons to wake up and to say, God, I love you. 
And our author this morning is going to give us a few others. He's going to give us a couple of other reminders to go, listen, when you don't want to put your feet in front of the other, when you just want to go, why? Or when you run into the difficulty of the race, I want you to remember a few things because it is coming. And I want you to be motivated to continue to run this path. And the first one of those comes right in those big few verses where we see the the challenges of Mount Sinai coupled with the beauty of Mount Zion. It's a contrast of sorts. And the first motivation is that we might remember and see the love of a great Savior. And he does it by contrasting a couple of things. And the first contrast he puts out there is he wants us to remember the reality of Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was the mountain where God met the people of Israel after the Exodus. So for those of you that are Old Testament scholars, you will remember that God delivers his people through Moses from the hands of the Egyptians. They go through the Red Sea, and God meets with them at Mount Sinai, where he delivers his glory and gives them the Ten Commandments. But Mount Sinai was the first real place that we see the Israelites coming into contact with God's holy and divine and righteous power. And it was... On full display. Like Moses was afraid. Smoke and thunder and power, right? And this is what he says, the picture of Mount Sinai was in that first part of that contrast. He says, you have not come to a mountain, right? He's reminding them, they're not going to Mount Sinai. That is burning when you touch it. And it was with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm. To a trumpet blast, to such a voice speaking words. who All who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it may be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses says, I am trembling in fear. So what our author's doing is he's saying, you remember the old covenant, the one that was talked about with your ancestors, the people before you, the one that is built under the law. The idea was simply this. God in his holy, righteous judgment, right, was terrifyingly holy. In other words, he is so perfect and you are so sinful that they even come into his presence would bring about death. That's the reality of holy God without a mediator. With holy God without a sacrificial system. Holy God without the ideas that he put in place in the old covenant to protect us from his holiness and his righteousness. That Mount Sinai was a picture of God's incredible holiness up against our deep sinfulness. That you couldn't even touch the side of the mountain. That if an animal touched the holiness of God, it had to die. That Moses couldn't even look away. That his hair went white. That he couldn't wear shoes. That he was petrified in fear. And one of the things they allude to is that when the people heard the voice of God, they begged to never hear it again because it was terrifying. Because God in his infinite divine holiness and our sinful deep reality of who we are, without a mediator, those things do not exist That's why the old covenant sacrificial system came about because it was bridging the gap through sacrifice from holy God to sinful humanity. And this is what God says. He says, remember Mount Sinai. This is not where you're being brought to. That was an Old Testament life, an old old covenant life, an Old Testament, Old Covenant way of life. And God doesn't change. He's the same. His holiness is still on full display. But there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference in what you're brought to as a believer in Christ than the mountain that the children of Israel were led to out of the Exodus. And so he's saying, I want you to see these two things side by side. That was Mount Sinai, God's holy, righteous power on full display. And people were terrified because they were sinful and God is holy and righteous. That's the picture number one. The second picture we see is the picture of a different mountain, 
Mount Zion. It's actually the, the holy new place, right? It's the new city, the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. And Mount Zion is not a location. It's not a physical location. It's actually who you and I are. It's followers of Christ because the church, right, has no geographic location, if you will. And so Mount Zion is this picture of this new covenant place where God is to be worshipped. So he says this, he says, but you, right, you have not gone to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men who have been made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to be sprinkled with the blood that speaks to a better world than the blood of of Abel. So this is what he says. He's saying that under the old covenant was God, and he still is God. And that God has not changed. That God is the same. But you were being brought to a different mountain because of the new covenant. You were not being brought to the mountain of the law. You're not being brought to a mountain of perfection where your moral aptitude was going to be the test on whether or not you could approach God. Of course, everyone fails, and so God puts in a sacrificial system. But that system was still steeped in the reality of God's holy divine judgment and our deep sinfulness. But we remember all the stuff in Hebrews about the new covenant. And he says, you're not being brought to that mountain anymore. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus, and you're being brought to a new mountain. And that new mountain is incredibly glorious because it's the same God. But instead of being dripped and kind of draped in fear, it's draped in approachability because of the new mediator that we have in Christ. And he's saying, you are actually coming to the greatest celebration in all of human history. He says, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels have gathered where we see the church of the firstborn, meaning the church that have been inheriting the promises of eternal God. People whose stories have been rewritten because they've been saved. Those that have gone before you. He's saying, this party, this place, this mountain, this thing is so much better because Jesus presides over it. God has not changed, but Jesus has become the great mediator between God's holy divine wrath and judgment and your deep sinfulness. I want you to understand how incredibly motivating this love of a Savior is. That you do not have to perform your way to God. You do not have to perform your way to moral perfection. You do not have to do right or be right for God to love you. That's the reality of what our author's telling us. And for those Hebrew Christians, right, this is a huge kind of struggle. For a lot of us, we may not get it, but when your entire family, your entire system, your entire upbringing was brought under this idea of Mount Sinai, and God says, that's not what I have for you any longer. What I have for you is something so much more beautiful. And I want you to keep going because you don't have to live morally perfect under that mountain anymore. You don't have to adhere to a perfect sacrificial system and be afraid because I've taken care of all of that. I sent my son Jesus to become the mediator of a new covenant of which you will be under. And that new covenant does not meet me somewhere like a mountain. It literally takes place in you because you are the new covenant. Therefore, this great assembly, this great gathering, this great celebration, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels is not a location. It's that location is wherever you are because the new covenant, Mount Zion, takes place literally in these moments in your life, in your heart, because you have been saved in this moment. And he says, so you want to be motivated. Be motivated by the fact that you don't have to be perfect, that you no longer have to live in trembling fear, that you no longer have to be so petrified of your sin. But you can come to Christ 
and you can lay it down and you will be saved. And in that salvation, there is the joyful assembly of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. And those that have gone before you, that great cloud of witnesses we talked about in Hebrews 12.1, they're all in there. And it's incredibly overwhelming in terms of joy. Now for us, the great motivation is this. We're motivated by a lot of things. A lot of us are motivated by fear. You know, if you were to ask me what my deepest fear is, I probably would not say snakes or heights or whatever. I would probably say failure. And I define that in a lot of different ways. Um, I define that in terms of failing my family or failing financially or failing this or just failing to keep a promise. But a lot of us live under this banner of fear. And so we're motivated in life to not fail or motivated in life to not let down. And that transfers easily over to our spiritual life. A lot of times our spiritual life is a motivation of fear. I don't want this, and so I'm going to do this. I need to perform for God like I would my earthly father. I need to make sure that I earn and merit that love that God knows I'm trying. And of course, over the years, we've talked about how theologically bankrupt that is. Because we will never perform our way to God. There's nothing you can do to take one step closer to Almighty Holy God. And God knew that. He knew that the Old Covenant way of life was a way that led to death. Because it was unattainable. And so God in his infinite beautiful wisdom said, I love you so much. I want to show you the love of a great Savior, of the perfect mediator. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to this earth to literally die for your sin. That all we are required to do is put our faith and our trust in Jesus and we are saved. And that salvation leads to thousands upon thousands of angels. If you want to see incredible stories, turn to Luke 15. Talks about there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Like every moment we surrender our life to Christ is a celebration bigger than you could ever imagine. The greatest party in all of human history. That you don't have to do it anymore. It doesn't mean we quit trying. It doesn't mean we don't want to live holy. What it means is that we no longer are responsible, right, for whether or not we perform our way into God's grace and God's goodness and God's love. It's lavished upon you, literally lavished upon you. So the first motivation he says is, I want you to be motivated by the love of a great Savior. In other words, not motivated out of fear to make sure you don't live incorrectly. Not motivated out of fear because you know if we don't go to church, I'm going to punish you. None of those things. But motivated by the fact that God loved you enough that he gave Jesus. It's the difference between the two mountains. Same God. We're going to see that over and over and over again in these verses. Same God. One We've been given Jesus. The other, we face God's wrath and God's holiness without covering, and that is fearful. So what we see is this. Reason to wake up as a believer is because I don't have to do it anymore. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to perform perfectly. I can fail, and yet God will still love me, and the fact that he still loves me will drive me to not want to fail. I will want to live my life to honor the king. Right? So he says, be motivated by the love of a Savior, not by the fear of a holy God. God is still holy, but we're not driven by fear. We're driven by love. We're driven to and not away. Second thing he reminds us of is this, is that we're, we're, we're motivated to see that the stakes are very real. Listen to verse 25. But you have come to Mount, or verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, this voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken 
that has created things so that they, what cannot be shaken is what will remain. Very complicated way of saying this. The stakes for what we do with the reality of Christ are incredibly real. It says, see to it that you not refuse his voice that speaks. Because there was a time when that voice spoke and shook the earth. Right? Same thing we point to Mount Zion, that judgment of God. And he says that judgment of God is not gone. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. Right? His love is displayed in the Old Testament. And his judgment is displayed in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God's love is displayed and so is his judgment. But the difference, as we saw with the mountains, is Jesus. And so he says this. He says, do not refuse the voice because that voice that shook the earth is coming again. And that voice will shake not just the earth, but it will shake the heavens as well. Meaning that there is a time that is coming that we will stand before a holy, mighty God. And what we do with the person of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. The stakes for what we do with Jesus are incredibly real. And he's explaining this in deep detail to this group of Hebrew believers that are being pushed to go back to an old covenant way of life. He's saying, listen, what you do with Jesus matters. And it matters so deeply. What is more important than what I'm getting ready to tell you? If you do away with Christ, you are left on your own. And God's judgment will shake the earth, and it will shake the heavens, and you will be bare with no mediator, no divine interceptor. You will be held according to the law and your merit, and that is petrifying. He said, but what you do with Christ, if you believe in Jesus as the mediator, the beautiful intercessor that comes from God, the cover of, of your sin, that we stand before God's judgment that not only shook the mountains once, but will shake the earth and the heavens again, we no longer have to be in fear. The stakes are that real. This is the idea of what it means to be truly saved. A lot of us think this. We think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament through Christ is a God of love. It's terrible theology. The reality is the God of the Old Testament is a God of love and wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and wrath. But even more so displayed in Christ. That he has provided both a way but his judgment still exists. And what we do with Jesus matters. John Piper puts it this way. He says, a theologian, pastor, basically says this. He, he says, at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, Jesus is, is real. Hell is real. And eternity is long. The idea being that we have to account for the reality of Christ. And the reality of hell. And has this eternal consequence that's incredibly real. That if we do not have mediator Jesus, the stakes are at an all-time high. And not just for your life, but for the world. It literally should drive our hearts to a gospel urgency. But the beauty of a gospel urgency is it doesn't depend on you, right? It depends on the Lord. But he wants to use you. But that same movement should drive our hearts. It should matter to you whether or not your neighbors have encountered Christ and what they've done with that. It's caring about the spiritual well-being of others. Last week it said, make sure that no one misses out on the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the call of the church. To understand that the stakes of what we are doing are real. We are not playing house. This is not dress up. It's not the idea that we're called together and just hug each other and make each other feel good. The idea is that the stakes are eternally high and that we are called as the hands and feet of Christ to tell a dying and desperate world that there is hope. 
And the world right now is on fire and the church is sitting on its hands. Because the church is either petrified or we don't know what to do with it or we're just so turned inward to ourselves and its own maintenance that we've forgotten that the chief end of the church is to testify to the grace of Jesus Christ. And the reality is the stakes are real. They're real for you and they're real for your neighbors, they're real for your family, they're real for people, and it should matter to us. It should matter to you if your mom or your brother or your cousin or your neighbors know Jesus. It should stir your heart. Truthfully, and it should bother you immensely if they don't. And we should pray for them and care for them and love them and at some point in time tell them about Jesus. Because the stakes are real and we're called to be motivated by that. In other words, we can't sit on our hands at the church. Both in our own life and say, oh, there, I'll worry about that tomorrow. A lot of us spend our lives doing that. We run around in our 20s or whatever and we do all whatever we're doing. And we think, hey, I'll go back to church when I have kids and a family. Here's the truth. We're not guaranteed anything. We don't know what's going to happen when we walk outside of these doors this afternoon. Life is not a guarantee. Every moment is this incredible gift and this incredible breath. And what we do with it matters. We cannot keep kicking down the road the things that God is calling us to do today. The stakes are real. They're real for you and they're real for the people around you. And our author's motivating us by saying, listen, don't refuse the voice that calls out. Like continue to trust and believe. So we've got this motivating factor that, listen, God has called us to something incredibly beautiful and incredibly great, and the stakes are high and they are real. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and a covenant that is so much better than the one that was, right? And then he says, there is going to be a time when God shakes the earth again. And not only is he going to shake the earth, he's going to shake the heaven, and all the temporary is going to fall away. And what's going to be left is what's eternal. The things that cannot be shaken, meaning those that have been saved, that have been redeemed, that have clinged to Christ, will be left standing. They'll be the ones that are saved. It's what it means to be saved. While what can be shaken, the temporary, the way that Abel chose life, will all crumble and fall away. That's the promise of the coming judgment. That's the promise of the return of Christ. And it should be terrifying without Christ. But with Christ, it's something we long for. Because we know that what's left is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What's left is firm foundations. What's left is not fear, but safety in Christ. And then he goes on and says this third one. He says, the motive, so we have this motivating factor to basically see the love of a great Savior, to know the stakes are real, and finally to see who God really is. Look at verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, meaning that once God has shaken the earth, Again, from the heavens, he shakes the heavens and all that is temporary falls away, right? We are inheriting, as believers, we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken, meaning that it will not fail or falter, that your life is safe and secure in Christ. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, it's one of those passages where we look at and we say, man, God is a consuming fire. We would expect him to say the God of the Old Testament is a God of consuming fire and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and acceptance. That's not what he says because that's not true. The God of the Old Testament is a consuming fire and the God of the New Testament is a consuming fire. God never changes. 
What changes is we have access to Christ who mediates between God's incredible divine holiness and our deep and petrifying sinfulness. So the question is, what's the difference? If God is a consuming fire both ways, well, the difference is this. Without Christ, right, God is a consuming fire essentially leads to destruction. Total destruction. But with Christ, God as a consuming fire means that God will consume our enemies. God will refine us like a refiner's fire. He will pull away the things that are not holy. He will make us more like himself. The process of sanctification becoming more like Jesus. God's consuming fire is not something to be afraid of, but something to be embraced. So the fact that we serve a God that is a consuming fire can be approached one of two ways. Without Christ, it is a petrifying, fearful reality that God in his infinite wisdom and holiness, that we can't even touch that mountain. But that with Christ, God's still the consuming fire. His glory and his holiness drives us to something different. It refines us. It protects us. It saves us. The reality is God is a consuming fire, and without Christ, that drives us to fear. And with Christ, it drives us to safety, one we embrace and one we run from. It's who God is. We want to paint a picture of this docile God who just laughs and kind of laughs off our childish sinfulness. A God who doesn't really care that we listen to some of his words and ignore the others and play with sin like it's some kind of game. We want to believe that that's the God we serve. Because that God is not holy. That God is not righteous. That God is not consuming. That God is mine and I can keep him in my box and I can play with him when I want to. The danger there, of course, is that's not God. God is a consuming fire who is still as holy today as he's ever been. That God is not to be approached with a mocking, calloused heart, but instead God is to be approached with gratefulness and reverence and awe, which is what our verses say there, right? That because God is this consuming fire, right? That we literally are entering a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are going to be thankful and we are going to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, meaning that worship is not for you. It's not an emotional game that we play with God saying, what do I get out of this? We worship because God is so holy that it's the only acceptable response when we come into his presence. When people enter the presence of God in the Old and New Testament, you know what they did? They fell to their face. Not only Moses, not only men and women of the Old Testament, but men of the New Testament. When Peter was sitting on the boat and he realized who Jesus was, he fell straight on his face. When the light flashed around Paul, Paul went blind and fell on the ground. The only appropriate response to God's holiness is literally collapse. You see, God in all of his holiness is not changed. And yet our worship is driven more by what we feel or what we think or how it affects me instead of the idea that God of infinite, incredible, holy wonder has called me into his presence and I am sinful and broken. And the only reason I get to worship at all is because of Jesus that I should be left literally and figuratively and spiritually dead because of my sin. And as harsh as that sounds, it does not make it not real. But the beautiful news in all of this is that Jesus changes everything. That we can approach God with what? And this is the final part of that. With gratitude and with awe. So we can approach the consuming fire. We literally have access to God's incredible, infinite holiness through Christ, without fear. Meaning that God will consume everything and we want him to consume us. We welcome it because of Christ. 
and it should drive us to gratitude and awe. When you enter into God's presence, when we come into worship, when, when we understand the nature of what's unfolding through Christ, where does it drive you to? Does it drive you to the idea that kind of annoyed I have to go to church again? Or the idea that, well, we've kind of got some other things going on Sunday mornings, like, you know, we got out of rhythm a little bit. And I mean, if you really think about it, this is the greatest privilege we get as followers of Christ is to worship together. God. We have to worship God together. But it's a game for so many of us. It's something we need to break from. Are you kidding me? It should drive us to gratitude because you deserve to die. Literally, you deserve destruction and so do I. I deserve to be in a gutter somewhere for the deep sinfulness of my life and my heart. But God, saved and redeemed through Christ. And I'm grateful because I know that without him, I'm nothing. I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible husband. I'm a terrible pastor. I'm a terrible man. Without Jesus, I am nothing. I will not lie to myself and tell myself different. I know me. I know how selfish I am. I know my ego. I know my pride. I know the terrible decisions I make. Without Jesus, I'm nothing. And you know what it drives me to? It drives me and should drive me to gratitude. The idea that I cannot believe I get to come and worship with you all. What a privilege. I get to wake up in the morning and have a family. And I get to wake up in the morning and realize that I'm not destined for God's fearful, consuming fire, but that he will burn away my failures and my struggles in Christ. He says, we approach this kingdom that cannot be shaken with gratitude and with awe. The awe is this idea of this incredible holy mystery. It's the culmination of worship that basically is infinite holy God in comparison to deep sinful self. When we recognize who these things are and how they fit together, it literally only gives us one option, awe-inspiring worship. When you recognize that the God of the universe loves you, knows your name, cares about you, has every hair on your head numbered, numbered all the things that you've done wrong, and honestly washes them clean in Christ. It should drive you to the place that says, I don't get it. I'm blown away that I get to sing to you, that I get to tell you I'm grateful, that I get to worship you. That I stand in awe of the fact that you have created the heavens and the earth, the intricacies of the human body, the incredible vastness of the universe, the cosmos, and yet you care about how I think and feel, that I matter to you, blows me away. The reality is, is that understanding who God is should drive us to gratitude and worship. But we are a generation and several generations actually of complainers, of whiners, of moaners, of kids that want more and more and more. And that generation started long before you. But the reality is we carry that banner well. Is gratitude a staple of your heart? Is worship a staple of your heart as a believer? These are the questions that are pressing us. And these are the things that are hard to hear, but they're no less true. And that's why our author takes us down this path of motivation to say, listen, if you're just motivated by the doing, you're going to miss. You've got to be motivated by the who God is. Because if you're just motivated to care for other people, their spiritual well-being, or to be braced yourself, like we talked about last week, eventually you're going to run out of your own steam. But he's saying you've got to be motivated to wake up, to live this Christian life based on some deep theological truths that you have been loved by a great Savior. It's a difference of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. 
Look what you get to be a part of because of Christ. And you've got to be motivated by the fact that the stakes are real. This is not a game. That eternity is truly a balance. That life is short. Jesus is real. Hell is real. Eternity is long. These things don't change. And it should matter to us, our own spiritual lives, and the spiritual lives of the people around us. Because eternity is at stake. And while God is the one who draws and moves, he wants to use you. He calls you. And finally, we're motivated by the reality that God, who God truly is, that he's a consuming fire. And that fire is either steeped in fear or that fire is something we get to embrace. But the fire doesn't change. We're either safe in Christ and God is pulling away all of our impurities and consuming those things around us or God is going to consume us. His holiness will overrun us and we will be due the penalty of our sin. That's the reality. The fact that we get to stand as a follower of Christ with the church of the firstborn, with those that have had their stories rewritten, the great celebration of all of human history, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that rejoice over your proclamation of Christ should drive us to gratitude and to worship. Anything less is unacceptable. Are you a person of gratitude and a person of awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping worship? This is who Christ is. And this is what we're called to, to not give away the one, to forsake the other. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray and we're grateful for the truth in Scripture. That it's not always easy to hear, and sometimes it's really point blank. We don't want to hear about destruction. We don't want to hear about your holiness. We don't want to hear about wrath. We want a God that just pats everybody on the back and says, it's all good. But the truth is, Lord, our sin does not allow it. You are holy and mighty and righteous. You are a consuming fire. You are a God of perfection. We are a broken, sinful people that are in desperate need, and yet you knew that. And not only did you provide a way in the Old Testament, you provided a better way into the New Covenant, that you gave us Christ, that if we put our hope and our faith in Jesus, Lord, we don't live in fear, but we live in the holy truth that we have been saved and delivered, which should drive us to be motivated by the love of a great Savior, because the stakes are what at play are extremely real. And Lord, that should drive us to a place of knowing exactly who you are. And that should push us to worship and gratitude. And I confess, Lord, there is so much in my life that is not grateful. I complain. I'm frustrated when things don't go my way. I worry. I get anxious. But at the core of all of it, Lord, the fact that you saved me and delivered me and those that are here, Lord, they've been saved and delivered, we should be driven to gratitude. I can't believe I get to draw breath every morning. I can't believe I get to wake up and come worship with people that I love, a God that has saved us. I can't believe that you have lavished these gifts upon me. I don't deserve any of it. And I'm grateful. And that drives me to worship because you are so good to me and I am so poor. And you have saved me when I don't deserve to be saved. And so, Lord, worship is not a habit. It's not something we have to do on a Sunday morning when we're not busy with something else. It is the joy that comes from knowing you. And worship doesn't just take place here. That's the beauty of Mount Zion. Worship doesn't play, take place just in a location. It can be the heartbeat of our very life, at the center of our family's table. 
Worship is who we are as a people that understand that we've been saved. So Lord, as I close our time in worship this morning, I do pray that you would let those things ring true, that you would free our hearts, Lord, that we would cry at the top of our lungs to a God who saves and a God who delivers, to the love of a great Savior, to the reality of God as a consuming fire that is not approached out of fear, but as approached